Okay, you got your Bibles, go ahead and stand up as we read God's Word together. Psalm 67, verse 1, God be gracious to us and bless us, cause His face to shine upon us, Selah, that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth, Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear you. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you tonight, we again sit like Martha at the feet of King Jesus and only wish to hear you speak. We don't need the words of a man. We don't need another message that would come without the power of the Spirit. We don't need words only. We need you to take this word and burn it deeply into our hearts. So I ask you now, whatever it is, whatever obstacles that are in our lives right now that would block us, from full surrender to Jesus, would you remove them? Would you draw us now into worship over your word? And would that, as a result of hearing your word, we would hear the authority of your word and we would go and we would obey? We are not here to be entertained simply stirred up to go out and do nothing. This is about you. So make it be about you now we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In Psalm 67, at least the way I see the text, I think there's three distinct portions that you might want to write down. There is, in verses 1 and 2, a petition. There is in verses 3 to 5 an exhortation, and there is in verses 6 to 7 a declaration. A petition that goes like this. God, be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Selah. That's a petition. Petitioning God for blessing. Now you know last night we ended the sermon, ended our time together in the Word with this verse. In which we said, if Jesus is as worthy as we see him to be in Revelation 5, then Psalm 67 has to be the way we live our lives. So as we dive deeper into this, I hope that you'll take the same spirit from last night as we look at what the psalmist wants to say. So the petition, God be gracious to us and bless us. Then there's an exhortation. Verses 3 to 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you, which the psalmist is actually exhorting God. He's exhorting God to let the peoples praise you. In other words, work on behalf of your own name so that all the peoples come to praise you. He's actually exhorting God. And then there's a declaration in verse 7, verses 6 and 7. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall 
fear him. The declaration being the answer to the petition. So, a petition, an exhortation, and a declaration. Now what I want to do tonight is try to deal with those three parts of the text, but I really want to do it in reverse order. Because I want to ask three questions that I hope get to the heart of where the psalmist is going here in Psalm 67. Three questions that I hope will bring us to a point of seeing our lives as existing for one purpose, to make his name known among the nations. So here's the first question. What do the nations need? What do the nations need? The second question is, why do the nations need? And the third question is, when will the nations have? Now, of course, if you were to just poll people, and if I asked you just simply across this audience, what do you think that the nations need? Most of us would probably say, well, the nations need salvation. And I would be in full agreement with that. Psalm 67.2 says this, that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Now, when you hear the psalmist say the term all nations, I hope your mind goes running because of the position of the psalms in the scriptures. I hope that your mind goes running backwards because this should connect you to something that has been said over and over and over again in the first book of the Bible when God was speaking to Abraham. Because I think what the psalmist is really getting at and what he really wants for the nations is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. You remember what God said to Abraham, this pagan man that he chose for no good reason except that God wanted to. And brought him out and made him the father of God's people. And he said this to him in Genesis 17, also for no good reason except that God wanted to. I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. That wasn't because Abraham was a great guy. He was a liar. And an adulterer. But he says, I'm going to multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of what? Many nations. That's verse two. Now here's verse seven. Genesis 17, seven. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and your descendants after you in their generations. Watch this. For an everlasting covenant. (laughs) That's interesting. See, up till now, God's been talking about, Abram, I'm going to use you to form a physical people. And as a result of this physical people, you're going to have descendants. But now he mentions something that is bigger, wider, deeper, longer. He says, I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with you and your descendants after you. And here's the terms of the covenant. I will be God to you and your descendants after you. Now that should also ring a note in your mind about another everlasting covenant that God mentions in Scripture that connects us right back to Abraham. The covenant of Jeremiah 31. Because as you might remember, all of this covenant business in the Old Testament up until Jeremiah didn't go so well for God's people. You know, he kept coming to Adam. That didn't work out too well. Here's the covenant terms. You can go anywhere in the garden that you want. Just don't eat of this one tree. How'd that turn out? 
Well, then you have the people that are formed and they stand before God at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and he says, you're going to be my treasured possession. I'll make you a kingdom of priests. All you have to do is obey me. How'd that turn out? Everybody over 20 dies in the wilderness and the next generation produces another generation that doesn't even know God. Nor what he did in Egypt. And of course you have the Davidic covenant where you have a man that even though he's said to be after God's own heart shows his heart by running his raping rake over a man's life and having multiple generations of his own kids suffer as a result. So God comes and he says, well, you've not been able to keep any covenant that I've made. You've not been able to keep your terms of the covenant. I've always kept mine. So here's what I'm going to do. Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. It's not going to be in front of them. It's going to be in them. And write it on their hearts. And watch this. Just like he said, here's my covenant with you, Abraham, to be God to you and your descendants. He says in Jeremiah 31, I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And I think the psalmist is looking at the Abrahamic covenant. He said, let it be, Lord. What do the nations need? They need the salvation that is promised through the Abrahamic line. They need to be true descendants of Abraham. That comes about by having their iniquity forgiven and their sins remembered no more. That's what the nations need. So that Psalm 67, 2 becomes a reality. He says, let your way be made known on earth. And you can almost hear the words of Jesus as he picks up on that echo. And he says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. What do the nations need? The psalmist says, let your salvation that you promised in covenant relationship through Abraham, that you ultimately showed us in Jeremiah 31, and that we're going to see in a Messiah, let it come about for all the nations. Just bring them in, God. Let it be. But you know, here's the reality. Even though we'll say that the nations really need salvation, and they do, that's not the end where the psalmist goes with this. It's deeper. This passage is what's called a chiasm. A chiasm means that you have parts that are parallel to one another that serve like a mirror. There's an A part, there's a B part, and there's a C part. The A parts are in verses 1 and in verses 6 and 7. It's a repeat of one another. God be gracious to us and bless us. And then look at verse 7. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. Here's the B part that repeats itself. Verse 3, let all the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. And then verse 5, let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. But those two parts, A, A, B, B, are pointing to the C part, which is the focal point of the entire passage, which is this. Verse 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Yeah. 
What do the nations need? The psalmist terminates on this. Yes, salvation, but the end for which salvation is given, namely joy in God. Notice why the psalmist says they have joy. Look what he said. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you. We'll judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. The people are going to have joy because they're going to be brought into relationship with God. That's the point. Yes, they need salvation. Yes, they desperately need salvation. But what's the point of being saved? See, here's here's an issue in the American church. It just is. So we might as well just say it. One of the issues in the American church is that we have assumed that salvation is really getting rid of whatever is punitive in my life. Salvation is decisionistic so that I get out of suffering, but use Jesus however I want to. That's not what it means to be saved. The nations need salvation so they have joy in God is not an isolated idea here in Saul. Listen, let's just have some passages to put behind this. 1 Peter 3.18, 2 Peter 3.18. Sorry, 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Here's the purpose clause. That he might bring us to God. Why did he suffer? To give you God. Yeah. Hebrews 11.6 But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Rewarder of what? Himself? Psalm 16.11 In your presence is fullness of joy and your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That passage saved my life. John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And it's at this point that we need to ask ourselves, is that the way we conceive of eternal life? Is that actually what we believe about what eternal life is? Because I'm afraid that our churches are filled with people who want to go to a heaven that doesn't exist. Mm. They're all good with heaven. They're all good with no suffering. They're all good with whatever they're doing here being magnified forever, but they don't want God. And if you're saved, you got saved because God is your treasure. You got saved like that. Here's the reality. When I'm sharing the gospel with people and we're talking about repentance and faith, I just go to a parable. Matthew 13, 44. There was a man. Kingdom of heaven is like this. There was a man who found a treasure hidden in a field. He reburied the treasure and in his joy went and sold everything he had and bought the field. And my illustration is always, if there's $10 billion buried in the parking lot and all you got to do is sell your shirt, would you do it? People try to be pious at that point. Oh, the old money. I'm like, stop it. You know you would do that. Get out of town. Like you would go, you'd sell, you'd sell your car. You'd go sell your, you'd sell everything. And here's the point. He sells in the parable. He sells everything in joy. And 
question is, don't you think everybody around him thinks that guy's crazy? He's selling everything, and he's so happy about it. Why? Because he knows what he's gaining. Yeah. When is the last time we talked about salvation like that? Just this decision. You don't want to go to hell, do you? <laughs> no, who does? That's not salvation. That doesn't honor Jesus at all. What honors Jesus is you seeing him as a treasure. That you're getting saved, not just so you don't suffer, or you're getting saved, not just so that you just feel better about yourself, or so you don't have a guilty conscience. But that you're getting saved for him. And at the end of your journey, all you want is him. And here's, here's what you need to ask yourself. If Philippians 1.21 is true, which is, for to me to live is Christ and die is what? Gain. Is that true? Bullet, I mean, gun to your head, is that true? You're losing everything in that moment. You're lying there, all your family is around. Your kids are around. All the possessions you've ever worked to have, you're going to lose it all in that moment. Can you really say in that moment it's gain? What do the nations need? Salvation bought by the way of God that makes them a covenant people. And the promise of Abraham. But ultimately the joy that comes from what was bought for them. Joy in God bought by the way of God. That's what they need. Jonathan Edwards said this, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is our proper end and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. Watch this. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. We were preaching through Ecclesiastes in, in the church I pastor. And it's interesting if you just track Solomon's life and his endless pursuit of satisfaction under the sun, which you know is fruitless. Yeah. He ends up concluding, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Which the word for vanity literally means to blow. It's like wind that is here for a moment and disappears and leaves you empty. But it's interesting when Solomon begins to catch what's over the sun. Have you ever thought that your desire... For anything good in this world is really an echo of your desire for God. Mm. We said this yesterday morning. Solomon found that the only real meaning in life is beginning to see everything in life as existing for one purpose, to bring you to God. So when you go and you eat a sandwich, you wonder, why do I have bread? The bread that satisfies this desire that I have, is that not really pointing to another desire for another type of bread? No. Did God not give you bread in order to bring you to the bread of life? Don't stop with the shadow. Go to the substance, Edwards would say. What do the nations need? 
infinite joy in the person of God provided by the way of God. And I want you to imagine now that you are in the Nuba Mountains in Sudan. All you've ever known of leadership and government is pillaging, rape, war, radical Islam. And somebody comes to you with a message about a king who will judge uprightly. You interested to hear that message? You might be thinking, that sounds great. How do I know that's true? Because all I ever know of leadership and kings and government is wickedness. So tell me now about this king that judges uprightly. How do you know he judges uprightly? And the response to them is not just what's his character. The response to them is he was judged for you. What judge do you know of that fell under his own judgment for you? What king do you know of that gave up every divine right to become like you in order to die for you? Surely you would want to say something like Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's how I know. How do I know that he really has this character? Because he showed it. Jesus said in John 3, 18, He who believes in him, the Son, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. But it's interesting, the word for condemned is really the word judged. And he's the judge, declared in John 5, that was going to fall under his own judgment and condemnation. Have you ever wondered, Jesus, you remember the story with the adulterous woman? One of the, one of the great stories of Scripture. You ever wondered, though, about the, um, the part of the story where Jesus says, whoever is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. You ever wondered about that? Because honestly, when they surrounded the lady, of course, where was the guy? I want the guy to be there too. That guy should get stoned as well. But Well, by Levitical law, she really could have been stoned. And I don't think Jesus was saying, I know none of you can stone her, and it's not right for you to stone her. I think actually what he's saying is, as long as you don't have any sin, go ahead and do it. And then all of a sudden the rocks start falling and people start walking off. And people think at this point that, wow, she's really escaped. No, she hasn't. Because the only one who can rightfully stone her is still standing there. And he says, neither do I condemn you to go and sin no more. What's he really saying? I'll be stoned for you. I'm going to be stoned for you. I'm going to make sure this is not my wife calling me to tell me she's going into labor. Okay. Good. <laughs> Jesus stands and says, this is, this is the judge that will be judged for you. That's all I know. So what do the nations need? 
They need to know about this God, the person in whom they will have infinite joy because for that they were made and they were purchased by the way of God, promised all the way back in Genesis, fulfilled in Jesus. But you know what's interesting? The psalmist says, let them sing for joy. But when you step off a plane, I bet you could ask Kevin or Jimmy or some of these guys, you step off a plane in parts around the world, especially in the majority world in the global south, you don't hear a lot of songs. At least not these types of songs. Yeah, you might hear some songs, but not the praise that the psalmist is talking about. Why is that? According to the Joshua Project, approximately 42.3% of the world's people groups are unreached. An additional 17.8% have a nominal Christian presence. This accounts for 2,998,119,000 people. And you say, as we said last night, well, what's the big deal? If they've never heard, surely they get a pass. And I know you all don't believe that, but it's no shock to you that there are a bunch of people who do. And some of them are big Christian voices who shake their way around this issue, trying not to offend anybody. And all they should do is say, every single person is a God rejecter for that they are under judgment. Yeah. There are no songs. What do the nations need? They need this desperately because there are no songs. There's no joy. There's no salvation. And that's what do the nations need. But the second question is why do the nations need? And I promise you I won't take as long to answer this question. Why do the nations need? Well, the answer to this question is not comfortable because the answer to the question is us. Why do they need? The answer to that is me and you and us. And why is that? Well, the psalmist says, God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Selah. Then verse 6, then the earth shall yield her increase. God, our own God, shall bless us. Here's the reality. The psalmist is crying out for blessing and God blesses the psalmist in response to the petition. Now I want to ask you a question. Is it any debatable fact that God has blessed us? Spiritually and physically. Is it a debatable fact that God has blessed us? Listen to this fact. I hope this shocks you. 50% of the world population lives on less than $2.50 a day. Mm. You can't get a coffee for that. Wow. 80% of the world lives population lives on less than $10 a day. How many nations are there on planet Earth right now? There's 193. South Sudan was the most recently constituted nation. America's gross domestic product represents 30%. One nation among 193, 30% of the gross domestic product. And you say, well, there's a tons of pagans in the United States. Well, I know that. But it is no coincidence that we have the gospel and the means to take it in the church. That is not a coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. 
God has blessed us, but somewhere along the way, we have missed the most important word in the text. And we talked about this last night. The most important word is the word that. Look at the text again. God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Selah. That. Your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all the nations. Every blessing that God has given you has a purpose attached to it. And it isn't to make us comfortable. It isn't to give us more stuff. And I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching at myself. And you just happen to be sitting there. We're in this together, but we need, we've got to come to the table on this one and say, we failed. We got to do something about it. We got to ask ourselves the question, God, what do you want from us? Because every blessing I have in my life does not exist ultimately for me. It exists for the sake of your name among the nations. That's what he's saying. Mm. Why are there no songs in over a third of the world? Why do the nations need? Because there's a breakdown in the system. And there's not another plan. The plan is, I'm going to bless a covenant people who will see me as so satisfying that they'll give up everything to take my name to the nations. That's the plan. But there's a breakdown somewhere in the process. We've become enamored with the gifts instead of the giver. Jesus said this, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroying, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And I wonder sometimes, are we more like that or are we more like the fool in Luke 12? You remember the fool in Luke 12? Jesus talks about him. He said, think about the parable of the farmer. His business is incredible and booming. And he says to himself, you know, instead of instead of just staying with my the barns as I have them, now, I'm going to knock them all down and I'm going to build bigger barns and there I'm going to store all of my grain and I'm going to store all of my possessions and then I'll go away and I'll say to my own soul, drink, be merry, for all your possessions are stored up. And God says, you fool, tonight your very soul is required of you. And to whom will all your stuff belong? Ask yourself the question. Have you missed the purpose for which God has given you everything he's given you? Has this church missed the purpose for which God has given you everything he's given to this church? 2 Corinthians 8, we have an example of a church in Macedonia. I don't know if you remember this. Paul's writing to the Corinthians and he says, I want to make you jealous. I want to show you what love looks like. And he says, I want you to think about the Macedonians. And this is what he says love is. 
Now, brethren, 2 Corinthians 8, 1-2, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. They were so poor that they kept wanting to give. That should shame us, yeah. honestly. The grace of God came to them and gave them so much joy in God that they were begging Paul to keep giving when they had nothing to give. We love being poor. Because we give it all away. So, why do the nations need us? When will the nations have You've got to ask yourself the question, why the psalmist cares about the nation's praise, and why should you? I mean, who cares? Why do you go to Pakistan? Who cares? I mean, that's over there. It's not here. Bolivia, Africa, Southeast Asia, who cares? Just let them be. Why does the psalmist care about their praise? Well, I think that C.S. Lewis maybe can help us out with this a little bit. You may not know this about Lewis, but he was an atheist. In fact, he thought that um, God and Psalms sounded like an old woman wanting compliments. He couldn't get over that fact. He thought, I don't know why God feels the need to command us to praise him. <coughs> I mean, if he's so great and so good, why does he have to command us to do that? It seems kind of like a megalomaniac. But when C.S. Lewis came to Christ, this is what he wrote. He said, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, Colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. Watch this. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Have you ever noticed that? Whenever you enjoy something or when you value something, it is spontaneous for you to go tell somebody else about it. <coughs> If you find out, what's a good restaurant here in Covington? Am I in Covington? Try again. Brighton. What? You're Brighton. Oh, Brighton. All right. Wherever I am. Uh, I'm, I'm here in uh, a place that's further north than where I live. Um, okay, so where's a good restaurant here? Memphis. <laughs> no good restaurants here. All right, good, good, good. Good. Now, how many of you, uh, how many of you, well, all right, what's a good restaurant in Memphis? Okay, Roots Chris, all right? If you go to Roots Chris and you have this great steak, man, the first thing you're going to do is go tell somebody about it, right? You're, man, you got to go try Roots I know you can't afford it, but I went there because I had a gift card. But, but man, I'm telling you, you got to go to Roots Chris. Or when you want to watch a football game. 
Some people like to watch football by themselves, but you know it's more fun, especially if you're sitting with somebody else who's rooting for the opposite team and you're whipping them like a dog. It is so much more fun to have somebody there. And there's a joke is funnier when somebody joins in it. A movie is better when you watch it with somebody else. Why? Here's what Lewis said. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. Here's what he's saying. If you enjoy God, you will spontaneously want everybody to join you in it. Because by them joining you in it, your joy grows. And if you don't care about the nations, it's not ultimately because you hate people. Maybe it is. But it's mainly because you don't enjoy God. Mm, That's right. That's true. So what needs to be checked tonight is not mainly, well... All right, then I'm going to come up with a plan of precisely what I'm going to do. You do that when God tells you. But what you really need tonight is to ask yourself this question. How much do you enjoy God? What do they need? What do more than 7,000 unreached people groups need? They need joy in the person of God that was bought by the way of God to become a covenant people of God. Why do they need it? Because of our idolatry. When are they going to have it? When you and I catch the vision of God that Isaiah had. He said, I'm ruined. Because I've seen the Lord. If we truly enjoy God in the way that we're meant to enjoy God, their worship will matter to us. And we will live to make Revelation 5 a reality, which is one day around the throne there will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And God, I want some of them to be in here because of my life. I don't want to waste it. I don't want to live comfortable when I might meet King Jesus tomorrow. Tonight. So let's pray. Let's ask God to do this in us. Whatever He wants. Whenever He wants. Whatever He wants. So that we might enjoy Him and make Him known. Father, we're just a mess without You. We agree with the old hymn, our hearts are prone to wonder, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God that we love. Here's our heart, Lord. Take and seal it, seal it for the courts above. And set us free in enjoying you to let go of all temporal blessing for the sake of your name. God, show us what that would look like. 
that our joy in you be so deep, so radical, so wonderful, so life-giving, that we fall out of love with the things of the world. This is our mission, Lord. So bring us into it. In Jesus' name. Amen.